Hey everyone, this is Stoney Beavers, Vice President for the Alabama Best Practices Center, a program of A-plus education partnership, where our vision is to promote a world-class education for every Alabama student, regardless of circumstance. At the Alabama Best Practices Center, we provide network professional learning opportunities to educators across the state. Our belief is that the knowledge truly is in the room and that we all get better together. To promote this idea in a brand new space, we would like to welcome you to the Better Practices, Brighter Students podcast. Our goal is to connect with educational leaders to bring you thought-provoking and actionable content. Better instructional practices result in happier, more fulfilled students who shine their brightest in the classroom and in life. In this episode, we're talking to Brian Goodwin, co-author of Learning That Sticks, and the new classroom instruction that works. Brian is the president and CEO of McRell International, a Denver-based nonprofit education research and development organization. He's a former teacher and journalist and has been at McRell for more than 20 years, serving previously as chief operating officer and director of communications and marketing. Brian also writes a monthly research column for educational leadership and presents research findings and insights across the United States and in Canada, the Middle East, and Australia. In this episode, Brian shares his passion for learning and working with educators and also developing student curiosity. He talks about really making learning stick in the six phases of student learning. And we really dive into his new book, The New Classroom Instruction That Works, that talks about the 14 strategies that really engage learners. We'll be using this text for our Powerful Conversations and our Key Leaders Networks in the coming year. And it's great to hear from Brian about how these resources can benefit Alabama educators. Let me go and close this door just in case my dog decides this is a good time to show up or whatever. So They usually do. Yeah, exactly. Well, actually, I probably should leave it open a crack because otherwise it should be pawing at it right but anyway you really have a very nice clean space there is that really how you work this is that this is i actually i work in the office a lot this is my basement so um it's kind of our it doubles as the music room but yes i try to keep it nice and tidy so anyway and it's cold today it's like 20 degrees in denver so i feel like bob cratchit nick asking mr scrooge put another but I guess that makes me Mr. Scrooge in that scenario too, right? Yeah, because you could turn up the heat. You do pay the bill, I could. right? I, I have that ability. <laughs> All right. Okay. <clears throat> well, welcome everyone to the Alabama Best Practices Center, Better Practices, Brighter Students podcast. And today we are talking to our friend Brian Goodwin, who is co-author of Learning That Sticks and the new classroom instruction that works. We are very excited about this new book. We've selected it as our focus text for the upcoming year for PCN and KLN. And we're very happy, Brian, that you've given us some time to talk about the work that uh, that you've put into this. It is it is a great, great resource for us. Oh, thank you. I'm glad to be here. Yeah. Brian is also the president and CEO of McRell International, which is a Denver-based nonprofit education research and development organization. Uh, I think, Brian, you were a former teacher and journalist, right? That's correct. Yep. yep. And you've been at McRail for over 20 years, and uh, you were the chief operating officer and director of communications and marketing. And if I am correct, you also, do you still do your monthly column for educational leadership? I do. Yeah. Yeah. Well, every other month now, but yes. I, okay. It's still there. Yeah. Yeah. 
So in that, uh, Brian shares research findings and insights with audiences across the United States and in Canada, uh, the Middle East and Australia. Any new countries to add to that, Brian? Um, I've done a couple in South America uh, this year, too. So Awesome. Well, great. Well, I know part of your passion is translating research straight to educators so that they can put it into practice. And so that really kind of gets us into the first question. What led you to uh, having this passion to really look at research, uh, make it something that could be digestible for educators and really affect their practices and have an impact on student achievement. Yeah, I think it goes back to, as you mentioned, uh, my being in the classroom, it was a long time ago, but, um, you know, um, yeah, I think like all of us, I wanted to be one of those amazing teachers. You know, I kind of pictured myself like Robin Williams and Dead Poet Society. And then, you know, you, you get in the classroom and I was like, it was like really mediocre. Right. And um, I was more like Ben Stein at times and thinking <laughs> how, you know, how do you, how do you get kids excited about learning? And I think there were moments for me, not in high school, probably so much, but like later in college where like, oh, I, I like this learning thing. Right. Um, and so I think that was always kind of a lifelong quest. Like, what can you really do to unleash student, you know, uh, joy of learning and be that amazing dynamic teacher? And I think when I came to McCrell, like it's 25 years ago now, you know, I, I, it hit me like, oh, there's really interesting research out there that helps helps us understand how we as teachers can can do a better job. So I think that's that's always been my motivation, not just like good teaching, but joyful learning. That's kind of what what I've always thought. I, you know, I would I would hope that in some way we can move the needle on that. You know, I think. That is the best I've ever heard that put because I talk a lot about teachers who get into the profession and they have a vision of how they how they want it to be, and then the reality of how it is. But I've never heard it really stated like it's it's from carpe diem to anyone anyone. Right. <laughs> that's, no I mean, kid that's was standing on I, desks in my classroom, you know. <laughs> <laughs> that's how I felt. Yeah, and so you really do look for things that will do that. And so I think you're right. There's people have done a ton of work out there that uh, we can use to inform our practice. So. I've really spent a little bit of time looking at, uh, you know, the six phases of learning. I think the, all the work that you've done with making learning stick and then really looking at the new research on proven instructional strategies. So tell us a little bit about what you think, you know, what's the most important thing that our listeners need to know about that work? Yeah. So I think you'll see woven throughout those two books, actually, this idea of curiosity. I've written about that elsewhere too. And I think that is for me, the, the the aha moment I think that I had as a researcher, but actually as a parent, and I'm going to tell a story about it, it actually happened on a day much like today here in Denver. It's cold and snowy. My daughter, she's now a sophomore in high school, but she's, I think, second grade at the time. She's coming down the stairs um, as I'm going up the stairs and, and it's it's um, cold and it's snowy. And so she asked, you know, is this a, is this a school day? Of course, here in Denver, it's got to be snowing sideways before we school, <laughs> close school. So I said, yes, it's still a school day. And I thought she'd do that kind of like Charlie Brown dejected, you know, shoulder slumping thing like, oh, you know, but instead she she pumps her fist and she's like, yes. And so then I, I have to figure out what's what's happening for her. And really what it was, it wasn't the kids. It wasn't the um, what was happening in the cafeteria or being served in the cafeteria. It was like her science, her teacher, second grade teacher was doing an overnight science experiment. And she couldn't wait, get, wait to get back and see what was happening. And so then that was like a moment where like, man, what if what if she could feel that way, first of all, every day? Because it was most days, but not every day. What if then I talked to her older sisters, you know, they were not as excited to go to school. <laughs> what if they could feel that? But what if every kid in every classroom felt that way? And so that's where this idea of curiosity is like, oh, it's such a powerful driver of learning. Of um, we know from brain science, like learning sticks better when you're curious. We know that you're more motivated. We know that curious kids 
Actually, curiosity is more strongly correlated with their success than IQ or persistence. And so I think if there's one message that's basically underlying these two books, it's like, how do we unleash curiosity? Because by the way, kids always have it. You know, we don't have to go teach kids to be curious. They're born curious, mm-hmm. but we seem to, you know, stamp it out of kids, unfortunately, the longer they stay in school. So I think for me, that's like the thread that goes throughout all of these strategies, all of these six phases of learning is keeping curiosity alive and, and unleashing it. Do you have any kind of going, you know, off the plan here, but do you have any just strategies that come to mind, especially for older kids that uh, teachers can use to really help bring back some of that curiosity? Yeah, I think there's a older kids get, do, do get harder, right? I think, um, you know, as they get more sophisticated, they start asking that question, what's in it for me? Why do I have to know yeah. this? And if your only answer is because it's on the test, that's not very gratifying. And so I really, one of the things we do talk to teachers about, it's in the book too, what's what's in it for kids like have you identified we call it the with them the madison avenue idea of what's in it for me it's a big acronym right mm-hmm. um have you figured that out and if you haven't um if you don't know why you're teaching what you're teaching you can be pretty darn sure your kids won't get it either and so i think for older kids it's it's helping them understand why is this important to know not because it's on the test or because you have to have this if you want to pass the ap or whatever they're they're doing but like how do adults use this knowledge how how can you actually apply this in your life and i think that's probably a key like fulcrum. If you can get that figured out, I think kids will be much more engaged, especially older kids, because they're going to ask that question, which is a good question to ask. Do I have to know this? Like, and if so, tell me why. You know, it's interesting because when I was working in curriculum, I ended up spending a lot more time in the career tech area than I really anticipated. And it was interesting to see, I think, you know, subject matter teachers could really learn a lot from career tech teachers in terms of those kids see uh, you know, it's hands-on. They yeah. they know what it's what's in it for them. They're thinking in terms of a job or a career. So I think helping educators make that connection is is really important. Yeah, definitely. So one of the things that I mean, there's so much information in all of these resources, and I also love the fold out that has the six phases of learning and the 14 strategies and the 45 plus classroom mm-hmm. tips. But you know, in chapter seven, you really talk about bringing it all together and kind of how teachers should approach this work and you know everyone is so overwhelmed there's so much they're trying to do so many different initiatives so you know how do you how do you recommend that educators you know access this information or where do they begin yeah and we what we would not recommend is that you like go try to apply all 14 strategies tomorrow right that's i think it's more figure out in your classroom and really using that kind of six phase learning model almost as a diagnostic tool like where's learning breaking down if i'm not if kids aren't getting deep, rich learning experiences, well, where did where do things come off the rails? And sometimes it's like, oh, I never got their interest in the first place. I better start there. Or I'm not clear and they're not clear why they're learning this. And so, um, or maybe there's a strategy or two that that represents, I, I, would, I would start with what's your biggest opportunity for improvement? And it could be also like, maybe I'm already kind of doing this, but with a little fine, fine tuning, I could be even better at it. So we would actually advocate to focus and use the book almost more like an encyclopedia. It's, you can come back to it, but you don't have to do it all at once. But find the one thing for you or for your colleagues even better, where like if we all got better at student goal setting, I think that could change things for kids. Let's focus on that and do that really, really well. Always better to do one thing well than a lot of things poorly, right? Yeah. I'm going to go through those six phases for our listeners just in case they haven't seen uh, the book yet. And we've been sure. previewing that with our uh, powerful conversations network and our key leading key leaders network uh, members and so 
I think this is going to be an area for next year that we can really talk about intentional design, lesson plan. But, you know, like you said already, just getting kids to become interested in the learning, you know, yeah. uh, why, why it matters for them. And then with that, committing to the learning. Uh, you know, we've done some work with really helping our members and students see what do I not know and what do I need to know and how am I going to get there? And then focusing on the new learning, uh, the grappling, the making sense of learning, then having time to practice and reflect. And I, and I know you talk a lot about spaced practice and coming back, you know, and, and revisiting the practice. And then that final level, which really transfers and makes it their own extending and applying. So as we think about those six phases, um, is there one area that you think is more challenging for students or for educators or a, a good place to start? Or is it just depend on, you know, your students? Yeah, I think I think you kind of put your, your finger on it, um, Stoney. But I think those middle strategies, we usually find that those are kind of bread and butter, like focusing on new learning. Well, I, I probably already do something that's visual. I probably already do some vocabulary instruction. Um, most teachers do know to take brain breaks and give kids opportunities to pause and reflect. I think what we usually see is, is the bookends and you alluded to it. Like, have we gotten kids interested? Um, do they, are they curious? Are they engaged? And so we talk about cognitive interest cues in that first phase. Are they clear about why they're learning what they're learning? Cause sometimes you, 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 you go to a classroom, you ask a kid, you know, what are you doing? They'll tell you what they're doing, but then, or, but not what they're learning. And so I think almost the first part thing of it is really important. But then um, anchoring that in that extend and apply. So are we engaging kids in some kind of guided investigation or is there a structured problem solving, a complex problem that they have to apply their knowledge to solve? Or are we helping them think about cognitive writing, writing to learn? And I think those two bookends will probably start to drive all the other changes too. Um, so probably it starts with what do I want my kids to know and how can they show me they've learned it in a deep way and then probably cascading from there. And then the other things are... are good kind of um, uh, maybe fine tuning or tweaking or, or slightly improving. But I think we usually see it's the bookends that are sometimes missing in a lot of classrooms. And when we do work in you know schools that we're helping improve their performance, it's interesting how much that is where they need to start. Usually they've been doing stuff around reading and math for years, right? That's not new. But the problem is the kids still don't know why they're learning what they're learning in math or reading. And so I think those are probably really great places to begin. Again, it'd probably depend on the school itself. They might say, we've got that, but we, we missed the middle part. But um, yeah. Yeah. And wouldn't you say there's probably some difference based on the subject and the grade level and, you know, this very specific content because kids are just naturally interested, more interested in some things than others. Right. So, right. you know, you may have to do a little more effort to make them interested in some other things. Yeah. I loved uh, your piece on cognitive writing as I was an ELA person and I was all Thank about you. metacognitive <laughs> learning and, um, that was always the, I would tell my kids, that's how I know that, you know, you're able to think about something because mm -hmm. you can't think about it. You don't understand it. You can't write about it. And so I can't right. see you're thinking about it. So I always feel the same way myself, Tony. Um, you know, the, the old adage, I don't know what I think until I see what I've written. When I write for Ed Leadership or when I write books, I do a lot of rewriting too, because my, my thoughts are becoming clearer as I'm writing. And so we want to give kids those experiences too. It's not just about regurgitating one time on a paper. It's like, Put your ideas down and then step back and go, does that make sense? Or do I really think that? Or how can I enhance that or go deeper with that? So yeah, I, I'm, I was excited that that was a strategy that that started appearing in more and more of these studies. That was something that was not in the previous editions of the book, but that we can highlight now, the, the power of writing to learn. 
Yeah. Well, let's talk a little bit about those studies because the the research in this edition and, and it's it's to me it's like a whole new book. It's not a follow up edition, but you know a lot of our listeners are probably familiar with Marzano and his Essential Nine that came out of the the first classroom instruction that works. But uh, you guys have really rigorous uh, criteria for the research that you use for this that gets us to these uh, fourteen new strategies. Talk a little bit about maybe the differences in that crosswalk that you guys did. Yeah. So as you as you noted, we, we started from scratch. We said, let's take a look at, at, at studies. Um, and we used um, what works clearinghouse criteria. So what works clearinghouse is a federally sponsored database. There are rigorous criteria. Basically, we're looking for only scientific studies where you could see there's a treatment group, there was a control group, there were statistical statistical controls to make sure that you know, the the treatment group usually randomly selected, but to make sure that that the kids were were came into the study or at least a control for it at the same level, and then you could see do, how much does the strategy actually help. So that, that that's kind of inside baseball for some folks I know, <laughs> but it's really important that what I think is what powerful about this is that teaching is a profession, just like medicine or law or engineering, and so we're we're excited this begins to elevate the profession to say. Um, there is really some real science here, brain science and science of teaching behind it all. So we started from scratch. And then as we did that, there were there were certainly some strategies that we saw that, that reflected that were already there. We talked in the previous editions about non-linguistic representations. In this mm -hmm. edition, we talk about visualizations, concrete examples. But in every case, we talked about homework and practice in previous editions. In this edition, though, we really talk about what kinds of practice are important, that spaced mixed practice or retrieval practice. And so what I think we're getting at is more precision, which also speaks to this is a profession that we're in. Um, I do like to tell folks like, um, you know, when you think about what we do as teachers, it's non-invasive brain surgery on kids, right? We're getting them to re, um, rewire their brains. And so we ought to know how the brain works. And so I'm also really excited about the, the science of learning undergirds all of this. And then we show on top of that, here are teaching strategies, the science of teaching, that can help the learning process happen. So um, hopefully, it, you know, my daughter's a teacher. I, I would love for there to be a day where you're on a college campus or a dinner party and you say, I'm a teacher and people are like, whoa, wow, that's amazing. That's that's tough work. It is tough work, right? I want yeah. the rest of the world to understand um, that to be a great teacher, you are a counselor, you are a cognitive scientist, you are a content expert, you're a behavioral scientist. There are so many things that we that we bring to the classroom to be truly effective as teachers. Well, that was one of the reasons that we wanted to go with this text for our guiding text, because we and and for the first time in a while, we really wanted to bring our administrators and our educators in the same room and hear the same message. Yeah. And so really looking at that for teachers, you know, the the science of, of learning, what do they need to be doing so that the kids really are learning? And then for the administrators and the people that are supporting the coaches that are supporting those teachers, you know, the science of teaching, what, what do we need our educators doing so that this learning is happening? And so we're very excited to kind of bring all that together. And, you know, we've done a good bit of work with Marzano and, and Jim Knight and other great thinkers in education. And one of the things we've talked about as far as instructional coaching goes is you, you need something to coach. Mm -hmm. And I think this, this book, um, really provides almost a model of instruction or an instructional playbook. If you look at those 14 strategies and you work with an educator on, you know, which strategy do you think would be most beneficial to your students? 
and then really work a coaching cycle around that. I think, um, have you seen anything like that or some, you could see the power in that? Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's, we were hoping that this also helps to define best first instruction. Everybody talks about yeah. that, but then you ask folks, what is that? It's like, oh, it's the thing you do first. You know I mean? <laughs> it's not, oftentimes it's not well-defined. And so, um, and the idea of having um, a learning model, one of the, we, we talk about under structured problem solving or those extend and apply, we want to help kids develop mental models of what of what they're learning. Well, teachers need a mental model. And so having a model of how learning actually happens, what that does is actually we become more intentional as educators. Now we can answer that question. Hey, I noticed you moved kids into small groups. Tell me more about why you did that. Had you asked me that question as, as a new teacher, I, I would have had an answer, not a very good one. I would have been like, well, I've been, I don't know, I've been lecturing all week. It's time to do something different, right? I would not have known why am I making these moves? And that's, we see over and over again, that is when teachers, it's kind of a breakthrough moment when they become intentional, when they when they understand why they're doing what they're doing. And then to have a model is also a way that we can be professionals. Now we have it, we have a common language about how things are, are, are happening in our classrooms and we can we can better share lesson ideas and units and, and so forth. So it is also about elevating the profession, right? We always start usually by following a model, and then eventually our hope is that it becomes teacher's own, right? So we're not saying this is the perfect model of learning, um, but it's it's hopefully it's a good approximation of uh, how the process works. And then teachers can go deeper and deeper with their own subject areas as they gain better understanding of, of how it works for their kids. Yeah, I think that's what attracted me to that six-phase model because, I mean, it really is geared toward students or learners, but mm -hmm. it's also geared toward us as adult learners. I yeah. mean, yeah. <laughs> you know, all that fits. Um, so this may take you back to what you said very early on, but just, you know, the the famous magic wand question, if, if you could just make one change in classrooms across America uh, and you had the power, what would you what would you focus on? I think it would be, that's a little bit what I, where I started, but it's the idea of joyful learning. I mean, how amazing would it be if when you were in a classroom, you see that kids want to be there, they're excited. I've been in schools like that. I've been in classrooms like that. I'm sure you guys have too. Um, but what if that could be true for every kid every day? So I think that's kind of, and how would you get there? It's because kids understand why they're doing what they're doing there. And it's not that it's not hard work. I mean, they're still working hard. They have to apply themselves. They have to use effort, but they understand why they're putting in that effort. Um, that would be, I think, you know, if I could wave a magic wand and have joyful learning <laughs> happening everywhere, that that's that's a small ambition, right? <laughs> well, it is. And, you know, that's our goal, too, as an organization. We want joyful professional learning and we yeah. we like to bring people together to network with each other. And, you know, they always tell us that the most joy, and the most learning comes when they're with a colleague from another school or another district and, you know, hearing about things that are happening there. And so I think being able to use this as a guiding text and, and bring in that network piece. Um, we're very excited about partnering with you guys for, you know, for some of the help next year. We're thrilled. Yeah. Yeah. Very, very happy about that. And so what would you say in terms of looking to next school year and us kind of bringing all this together as a network, um, maybe what you hope our, our network members might get out of this learning. Yeah. Well, and you alluded to it a little bit, Sonia, that these, this model of learning also applies to adult learners. Right. And so, um, and one other thing, the the way the way we wrote that model of learning, it's about what learners are doing, not what teachers are doing, right? So it's it's sometimes that's a huge shift for teachers too to to understand like, oh, my job is to make learning happen, not to stand in front of the classroom and teach. I'm going to do that because I'm trying to make learning happen. So 
that might be one of the big things, um, that kind of paradigm shift in a lot of places that now we're focused on learning and we know what, how that, how that can unfold. Um, so if there's probably one thing that might come out of it, it could be that, that the shift from, we talk about going from planning to teach or planning for teaching to planning for learning. And that can be a huge, a huge shift. I think the other thing you guys are already doing this, um, is to model the, the, the model of learning, right. To model the practices in professional learning. That was, one of our aha moments too, is we created the learning model. Maybe there's a forehead slap moment, like, oh, you know, professional learning should should look like these same six phases too, and have opportunities to work together, to process, to make sense, to go apply, you know, practice and reflect, and then extend and apply and make it deeper too. So um, I, we're excited to, to to work alongside you know uh, you all and folks in Alabama too to to really make that that shift happen because I do think that's when joyful learning begins too. Yes, and we are, you know, we are planning as of now to really look at that six-phase model and then, you know, also where possible model those strategies with adults in professional learning. Yeah, uh, I think there are really good opportunities for that as well. Brian, what else? What uh, what else do you want to add about maybe any of the questions or a question I didn't ask, uh, something you want our listeners to take away? Yeah, one that I've had, because I, I sometimes we sometimes hear this when you talk to teachers. In fact, I just wrote about this because it's it's uh, the new year, right? Um, I think sometimes when you when you talk to teachers about research-based practices, they're like, I know I should do that. <laughs> but it feels like a, a New Year's resolution that you give yourself that you don't really want to have. Like I need I should eat kale salad or, or you know, go to spinning <laughs> class. Um, but where I where we keep coming back to is like, but these strategies done well, and we see these in the studies. We saw studies where kids were like building skateboard ramps and they were super excited about that, going out to the playground and and filming creating videos and understanding the physics of what's happening in the playground or writing about their own personal experiences. Like what we saw in all these studies, as and sometimes they're pretty dry to read, but there was joy and excitement in that. So I think the idea is like really using research-based practices isn't joyless it because sometimes it feels like oh it's really static and didactic and van stein-esque it's not right <laughs> using really really applying research-based strategies is great teaching and, and when you think about it all research is is a researcher realized hey this teacher is doing something different and amazing i want to figure out what that is and then they would study and go oh there is something different and amazing and give it a label so research comes right out of great teaching so that's that's the other thing to i think say we're not doing research-based practices because we should. We're doing them because we want to, because I think it'll make our jobs easier and more joyful too. Well, and we've seen a lot that when educators share, uh, you know, those practices and they observe each other and they support each other, then it, it's much more likely that they're going to continue using them and making them their own as opposed to just if someone else is telling them, hey, do this in your classroom. Absolutely. Yeah. No. And there's so much good stuff that's already happening in a lot of classrooms. Usually the answer is always in the room and it's yeah. just drawing them out and using using the, the strategy to say, oh, that's what I've been doing all along. But now I have a better way to, to, to describe it and to share it with other people. Well, it has been so great. I mean, there's so much more we could talk about, but I really hope our listeners will uh, get the book. I hope they'll join us in the networks next year. And uh, before we kind of sign off, Brian, why don't you tell people where they can find you, where they can find more information, where they can get the book or uh, maybe some of your other writing or, you know, whatever you, you're putting out there. Yeah. So I would encourage everyone to visit our website, www.mcrell.org. We've got lots of free resources there. 
Um, we do lots of white papers and so forth that, and we have tools and all that kind of stuff you can, you can download from the site. And then on that site, you can find me pretty easily, but I'll give you my email address too. It's bgoodwin at mccrawl.org. And so please reach out. As you can tell, I'm, I'm always excited to talk about this kind of stuff and would love to hear from folks too. So. Well, Brian, thank you so much for this time. We will definitely put that information in our show notes and uh, make everything accessible to our listeners. Uh, just really appreciate you sitting down with us. I look forward to us partnering in the coming year. Thank you for all your support in the past. Uh, you have so much to offer Alabama educators. And uh, a lot, like you said, a lot of Alabama educators already have some great things happening in their classroom. And we'll also spread that and share that. So hope you have a great rest of the day. And uh, we look forward to sitting back down with you before too long and maybe talking about uh, what's what's next for you. It's great. It's been a pleasure. Thank you all very much. And, and best of best of luck to all of you out there in Alabama as you as you go about doing the good work that you do. All right. Thank you, Brian. Hey, everyone. This is Dakota Punzel, Operations Manager for the Alabama Best Practices Center. We just wanted to thank Brian Goodwin again for taking time out to chat with us. You can find everything we talked about in this episode, resources, documents, anything we mentioned, you can find it in the show notes. So be sure to check that out. Uh, if you are planning on picking up a copy of the new classroom instruction that works, our KLN and PCN members will receive a discount code after registering, so keep an eye out for that. Also, stay tuned for next month's episode with Dr. Tanya Perry. And if you or someone you know would like to be a guest on the podcast, please reach out to me at dakota at aplusala.org. Most of all, thank you all for listening, and we hope you have a great day.